listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. Heroes of the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy David Tingley Part 1 As I am fond of reminding you listeners, humans are social animals. One of our superpowers as a species is the ability to work together in large groups towards a common goal. No other mammal comes close to us in the ability to communicate and coordinate in this way. Despite the pop culture cliché of the martial arts master honing his skills alone in the mountains, the practice of the fighting arts is best pursued as a group as well. After all, if you're going to practice defending yourself against another human, it stands to reason that it would be handy to have other humans to practice on. The academy that I own and operate is no different. Its history is replete with the stories of other humans who made important contributions to its growth and success. In this occasional series of podcasts that I'm calling Heroes of the Rising Phoenix Academy, I plan to tell some of their stories. Today I want to tell you about my friend, David Tingley. I met Dave near the very beginning of my teaching career. In 1976, I and another brand-new black belt combined our meager funds and inexpert labor to remodel his mother's garage, converting it into a small space dedicated to martial arts training. We each had about half a dozen students that came to inhabit that nascent academy with us. David Tingley was not my student. Instead, he was training under the other instructor. But Dave, being Dave, liked to come hang out while I was teaching, too. He wasn't paying me for classes, but I encouraged him to be there anyway because he was far and away the best athlete from the combined gene pool of both groups, and thus made an excellent addition to our sparring sessions. Dave was also, quite simply, a great guy, who got along with just about everyone. I had my group spend a much larger fraction of time sparring than did the other instructor who inhabited that garage. Despite the occasional and generous assertions by my students that they found my instruction useful, at this early stage of my teaching career, I often felt that I was only barely ahead of my students. I was especially weak at verbally breaking down the nuances of technique. Like so many young instructors, I made up for this deficit by sparring with the students. At that time, my hands and feet were far more eloquent than my mouth and brain. As it turns out, David loved to spar, so his presence was beneficial for my students, and the experience was enjoyable for him. He also liked training under his instructor, which largely consisted of learning forms. So Dave was taking in different information from two very different sources. Smart. 
He was a striking specimen, over six feet tall and over 200 pounds of solid sinew and bone. A heavyweight with a six-pack. He had bushy eyebrows and a mustache like Groucho Marx, along with a bushy dark beard and long brown hair. As I said earlier, Dave was a good athlete, one of the more graceful big men that I've known. As he grew in the martial arts, he developed a very personal style. He was a good dancer and would happily dance at the drop of a hat. He also loved the way that practitioners of classical kung fu styles like Choi Le Foot, Wing Chun, and Hung Gar moved. He married this fascination with kung fu to his love of dance to develop a unique and rhythmically interesting approach to sparring, the likes of which I have yet to see from another human. This distinct approach combined with Dave's playful nature, which manifested itself through strange facial expressions and vocalizations, prompted more than one of his training partners to remark that sparring with Dave was like fighting a strange creature from science fiction. This inevitably led to Dave acquiring a martial arts nickname, or fight name if you will. He was dubbed the Boonie Monster. Now I know that I have listeners in other countries. Boonie is slang for boondocks, which is slang for the wilderness, where monsters just might dwell. Another nickname that Dave was given, inevitably, when you consider that his last name was Tingly, was Ting Lee. In any case, and whatever you called him, sparring with David Tingley was a trip and a pleasure. His contributions to my efforts to nurture a positive sparring culture in the early days of what then passed for my academy were important and invaluable. Dave was an important person in the history of my academy in other ways as well. Let me set this up. My time teaching in the remodeled garage lasted less than a year before I had a falling out with the gentleman whose mother owned it. So I moved the classes into my mother's garage. It was not heated, but the transition happened in the summer. Not long after that, I had a falling out with my mother, who insisted that I leave the garage and her house. This essentially put at least a temporary stop to my teaching. I had nowhere to do it short of public spaces. To survive, I got a job clerking in a used bookstore. The owner of the store, who had known me for quite some time as a loyal customer and was notoriously short on scruples, took advantage of a young man in desperate straits. He had been selling collectible comic books for a few years at this point, and that was a new thing in Evansville, Indiana in 1977 and people who understood the comic book market were thin on the ground at that time. I was desperate for a job and a place to live, and I had extensive knowledge of collectible comics. The owner offered to allow me to put a cot in the bookstore basement if I worked as a clerk full-time, for extremely meager wages, barely enough so that I could walk to a restaurant or store three times a day in order to eat. You see, there were no refrigerator or cooking facilities. Now, this was illegal as hell. He was paying me cash and not reporting my employment to the government. I would be his serf. In my desperation, I accepted the deal. 
I toiled as his wage slave for the better part of a year. As time wore on, I moved to a pretty dark place, emotionally speaking. For much of this time, I didn't have a working car. I had no telephone. Remember, this was decades before the advent of the cell phone. I lived in near isolation like a hermit in the small world of the store, working upstairs eight hours a day, walking somewhere to get some fast food for each meal, and passing time in my little basement room with my books and my black mood. I slacked way off on training. I partied way too much. This was the only significant period between 1976 and today in which I didn't teach a significant number of martial arts lessons. I was in need of an intervention, and David Tingley provided it. Dave was not, in any official capacity, my student. He was a training partner and a friend. He had little to gain from pulling me out of my funk, other than doing a friend a solid. One night, I heard a knock at the back door of the bookstore. I walked up the stairs from my tiny basement dwelling and opened the door to be greeted by Dave's goofy, wide grin. I invited him down to my living space, where we quickly caught up. I hadn't seen Dave in months. He had heard it through the grapevine that my life now consisted of working, isolation, and substance abuse. So he started gently. That was a good tactic. I hadn't seen Dave in months, and I was curious about how he was doing. But as the conversation went on, he began steering it back towards me. I would insist that I was fine, that everything was great, in the fine tradition of toxic masculinity. Dave grew more insistent, asking repeatedly why I wasn't training. Instead of saying something that was closer to the truth, like, I'm in a deep state of depression and can barely find the energy to crawl out of my cot in the morning, I offered a litany of excuses about having no facilities or training partners. Dave spread his arms wide, flashed his patented grin, and said, Well, here's a training partner right here. The next thing I knew, he had talked me into getting up off my ass and doing some chi sao with him. Now, for those of you who don't know, chi sao is a drill from Wing Chun Gung Fu. It trains the students in techniques and attributes necessary for the set of skills called Fon Sao, which translates to trapping hands. In addition, and very important for this story, chi sao requires very little space. Just enough room for the two students to stand pretty close to each other. I started out sluggishly, half believing that between muscular atrophy and lack of practice, that I had lost all the hard-gotten gains from six years of training. But muscle memory soon began to kick in. I began warming to my task and soon realized that I was enjoying myself, despite my misgivings. Had this happened with someone besides Dave, I suspect that it would have gone very differently. But his distinct combination of skill, humor, compassion, and intelligence meant that he was able to present tactical problems at a level that engaged my martial arts intellect despite my whiny self-loathing that he could emotionally handle it when my enthusiasm caught fire and I got close to the edge of control, 
and he could share in the savage joy that I felt in training again. We laughed out loud as we organically expanded beyond Chi Sao, bouncing each other off the brick walls and concrete floors, striking, kicking, and foot-sweeping. When we were done, we stood there sweating and grinning like idiots at each other. I hadn't used my not inconsiderable flexibility, or filled my lungs deeply with air, or used my combative knowledge in a meaningful way for months. In addition, towards the end of our session, I actually felt that my abilities and attributes were functioning at a higher level than ever before. Now, of course, there's no way to determine whether this impression was objectively true, or was an exaggerated feeling fueled by raging joy. Nevertheless, it was an extremely powerful feeling. What a gift my friend David Tingley had given me. This experience acted as a catalyst, motivating me to do what it took to get back into teaching. I mended fences with my mother to a degree sufficient that she once again allowed me to use her garage to teach my classes. I contacted as many of my former students as I could reach, and was pleasantly surprised that nearly all of them wanted to resume their lessons. I quit my bookstore job, moved in with a friend, and resumed teaching. Word got around, and I quickly picked up a few new students. So as you can see, I and my future students owe Dave a significant debt. When I contemplate what a dark place my mind was inhabiting, what poor choices I had been making in my life in the months prior to Dave's visit, it's perfectly possible that he saved my life that night. But at the very least, he helped to ensure that I would continue my martial journey and eventually found an academy. In addition, Dave's intervention also inspired the name of that academy. You see, in contemplating a possible brand name for my school, I rejected the dragon as a symbol outright. During the 1970s, my hometown had already had a number of martial arts facilities with dragon as a symbol and as part of the name. There had been a black dragon, a white dragon, a golden dragon, and an ultimate dragon. I never had the nerve to tell the owner of the ultimate dragon that ultimate does not mean best. It means last. I was damned if I was going to inflict yet another dragon on the tri-state martial arts market. I was not averse, however, to using a different mythical creature as my symbol. As I pondered my experience with Dave that night, it struck me that artists and athletes all seem to experience occasional slumps, times when their performance feels diminished, stale, or unsatisfying. It also occurred to me that so long as the artist or athlete doesn't permanently quit, the slump eventually comes to an end, sometimes in a sudden fashion, brought on by a catalyst like David Tingley's intervention. Such joyous occasions can make you feel that you have been reborn from the figurative death of your slump. In a long career, this will probably happen a number of times. This phenomenon brought to my mind the ancient myth of the phoenix, a legendary bird that experiences a series of lives through a repeating cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Okay, that gives you phoenix. Where does the word rising come from? 
Do you remember earlier when I was describing my workout with Dave? I mentioned that despite my long layoff, I felt I was performing better than ever before. I find that when I come out of a slump, the feeling is frequently accompanied by that of having leveled up, of having experienced a quantum leap in ability. My figurative rebirth was accompanied by a feeling of rising above my previous level. Hence, rising Phoenix. Next time, I'll tell you about yet another way that David Tingley helped assure the future of my academy. And I'll share with you a few adventures that Dave and I experienced together. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>